morning, I want to share with you one of my favorite little parables um, of an experience of someone that I've read a lot of his works, and uh, he was on his way to eat at a friend's house who happened to be a gourmet cook of fine cuisine, and she made exquisite food, very beautifully presented, and, uh, but usually not enough for a real hearty appetite. And so on that particular day, this acquaintance um, happened to miss lunch, and he was ravenously hungry, and as he made his way to the host's new address, his directions weren't very clear, and he was having a hard time finding the house. So famished and lost, he kept driving by the golden arches. (laughs) And the sight of them had the same effect on him as the sirens of Greek mythology had on the hapless sailors. So he reasoned, well, she never really serves enough food anyway. Why not have a snack to hold me over until I find the place? And so he pulled into the drive-thru, but he had a hard time deciding what to order. The menu was absolutely huge, and he settled for... Something small, a couple of Big Macs. (laughs) And um, looked at them and he thought, well, they're not very big after all, so what's a hamburger without French fries? And uh, it's like a day without the sun, right? So he ordered a large fry too. And since the fries are salty, he added a supersized Coke to wash it all down. And then there was this deal on pies. (laughs) So... He felt real good after that. And he finally did find the house, and the woman, as suspected, had prepared this wonderful meal, and it was probably the best meal he didn't enjoy. The man was so full, he actually left the food on those little tiny plates (laughs) and left it there. Silly parable, perhaps, but truthful story of how the great enemy of what is best is not always the worst, but what is seemingly good. Someone has insightfully observed that life and ministry is full of fast food drive-throughs, easy and pleasant detours from God's best. They leave us stuffed in our spirits, overloaded and soul-crammed, not with the bread of life, but with spiritual junk food. And I agree with that statement, don't you? I need to admit, as one man put it, that I am hungry for the permanent, the substantial, and the true On every level of my life, I do not want to be working for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures unto eternal life, as John 6 says. Don't you want to work for the food that endures unto eternal life? But I get the impression sometimes that all of us, myself included, enter our churches each week and we are so stuffed on the junk food of the world that we enter the local assembly already too full. Too full to partake of anything that the Lord may have for us here. Is is the ministry of our local churches fast becoming the best meal we didn't enjoy? That's the question this morning. Each week as we gather together as a worshiping and a praying and a fellowship community and a learning community of believers in Christ, do we come prepared for a feast? That's the question. Preparing for the feast is what you and I are all about when we come. But what kind of feast are you preparing for and what kind are you partaking of is the question. The fact is that oftentimes, if I'm not careful, if I'm not very alert, if I don't maintain a close relationship to him, a clear vision of him, 
My spiritual journey with Christ can become very routine and very stale and all too familiar. I realize that in my life, I, I can easily get sidebarred by so many things. drive through windows of the worldly food. But only one thing's really necessary. I must maintain a fixed focus. And it's not on what everyone else is doing around me. It's not on the difficult circumstances that may surround my life. It's not on the failures or the successes of my past or the fitful frustrations of the present. It must not be on the fears that I may have regarding my future or what lies ahead for the church even. My attention, your attention, must always and ever be riveted on the face of Jesus Christ. He must be the substance of my faith, the anchor of my hope, the object of my love. I must feast on him. But how easy it is, even for the children of God, to lose their taste for true spiritual nourishment, especially when we are bombarded with alternatives that seem very tasty and very convenient. You know, I think that was the case with some of the seven churches that we've been studying in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Moreover, I'm convinced that that's the crux of what we wrestle with today. The Lord has been bringing many people today, many people, myself included, to a place of questioning. We question the direction of God's church at large. We inwardly ask questions concerning the direction of our own life and our own ministry. Yet for me, those inquiries always lead to an intersection of sorts, a crossroads of decision. And I've been in it long enough to know that the best road and the only direction which will lead us to the real answers is through the revelation of Jesus' word. And that's where we've come to in our study in Revelation. In our study of these seven letters sent by the Apostle John to the churches, actually sent by Jesus to the churches, the Apostle John just recorded it. In these past few weeks, we've uncovered Jesus' divine assessment of what makes a church great in heaven's eyes. Let's review the letter to the church at Ephesus. See if you can remember these things with me. Great churches maintain it, their love, Right? The church at Smyrna, Christ's words to that church says that great churches learn to suffer well. Christ's counsel to the church at Pergamum highlights the fact that great churches are not consumed by what? The world. And Thyatira is an example of the fact that great churches are not confused about the truth. Which brings us to the church at Sardis, to which Christ gave these clear exhortations last week, we learned. Wise up and remember what you received in the past. Wake up and reaffirm what you have in the present. And then look up and be ready for what's coming in the future. In other words, great churches don't rest on the reflection of their past reputation, but rely on the reality of their present relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what we saw last time. All that spiritual food, that's all good spiritual food, right? But I believe that what Jesus has to say to us today, the feast 
that he has prepared for us this morning is found in the remainder of chapter 3. The remainder of chapter 3, the last two churches, and we're only going to look at the first one this week. And here's the question. Where does Fayette Baptist Church go from here? We're at the crossroads. According to this, these two chapters, these seven churches, we are at the crossroads. There are two ways that we can go, according to chapter 3. One way offers nothing but praise and applause from Jesus. In other words, Jesus is saying, this is church. The other offers nothing but rebuke, not one word of praise, and a pleading, rather, that that church lets him take his rightful place in our lives and in the church again. Sardis is the church at the crossroads, both figuratively and physically, and we can choose to move ahead in one of two ways, by way of Philadelphia or by way of Laodicea, the last two churches. Now, if we want to be a church that is great in heaven's eyes, I think the choice is very obvious. We need to move in the direction of Philadelphia. Amen? And you say, you can't say amen. I don't know what that is. <laughs> well, I'm about to tell you what that is. The church of Philadelphia, this is what we learned from that church. I'm going to give it to you at the outset, and then we'll unpack it. Our church, if we're going to go in the, in, the, in the direction of Philadelphia, must lean on the sufficiency of Christ. Let's look at verses 7 through 13. Let me just read down through them. The message to Philadelphia and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews, but they are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. And I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have in order that no one take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Like Smyrna, no word, not a single word of rebuke was given to the, by the Lord to this group of believers at Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. No blame, just blessing. No threat of fearful judgment from the Lord when he comes, just the thrill of future vision. This was a great church in heaven's eyes. But why? What made them healthy? It was a church probably very, very small in numbers, 
yet it used every single resource it had and every opportunity that it had to glorify Jesus Christ. Verses seven and eight again. Jesus says, he was holy who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and shuts and no one opens. Jesus encourages this church by saying, I am absolutely holy and absolutely true. And my holiness and my truth have scrutinized you, believers at Philadelphia, and there is nothing to condemn. Wouldn't you like to hear Jesus say that about us? You know what that says to me, though? That says that it's possible for a church, a human church, that is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, a church with people just like you and just like me to be looked at by the holy and true one of God and actually be commended for what they do. Isn't that great news? He says, you have a little power. Now, some may think that that he's saying that they were pretty feeble, But I don't think that's the case here in this text. I agree with one author who thinks it's best to understand this phrase as a commendation, as simply saying, you're not very big, Philadelphia. You're not very large, but you've got power. You're small, but mighty. You're like dynamite in a bottle. He's not saying you have a little power and you ought to have a lot of power. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you've got power for your smallness and you have spiritual power that's making a huge impact where you are. It's interesting, my grandkids the other day, I walked into the house and they were watching a movie on our TV and it was Aladdin for the umpteenth time, right? (laughs) And my grandkids are now watching it. My kids grew up with that movie and they watched it over and over and over again. You know when that movie came out, 1992, Can it be that long? It was like yesterday. But my favorite line in that movie, not surprisingly, is delivered by the genie, right? It's it's a self-descriptive rant that he highlights the ironic dichotomy with the fact that he has phenomenal cosmic powers, but he lives in an itty-bitty living space. (laughs) In a very real sense, that memorable statement reminded me again of the Philadelphia church. This church was faithful with what it had been given, regardless of the little strength that it had. Christ, who has the key of David and the authority of, just authority, that's what that phrase means. You can look it up back in Isaiah chapter 22. It's a reference to Isaiah 22, 17 to 22. But he had given it, Christ had given this church a wide open door of opportunity for glorifying God. And because of their commitment and their faithfulness to Christ, no one, not a single person, would be able to shut that door. And by the way, just as a reminder, it is not the government that opens doors for the church. Remember that when you go to the polls and vote. But know for certain, it's not the government that's going to open or close the doors for the church. It is Jesus Christ who has the keys of David. It is Jesus Christ who said, I am the holy one and the true one, and I sit on the throne. And when I open a door, no one can shut it. And when I shut the door, no one can open it. It's Christ who does that work. 
This is a stark contrast to what God said to the people of Malachi's day who were offering second-rate service and half-hearted worship to the Lord. You remember that at the beginning of this series? I highlighted Malachi chapter 1, verse 10. And in that, God says to to the people of God, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors. Remember that? Shut the doors that you may not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. That's what he said to the people of Malachi's day, but that's not what he's saying to Philadelphia here, is it? He's saying, I've opened this door and no one's going to shut it. Keep them open because you're doing a good work. Now, friends, it doesn't take a large number of people or a big budget to impact the world for Christ. It does not. All it takes is a few faithful people who are committed to going the distance with Jesus. Amen? Amen. People who are willing to do what this church in Revelation 3 did. What did they do? Well, let's look. In spite of their human weakness, first of all, they became strong in Christ. Look at this. Because you have a little power and have kept my word. You have a little power. You've kept my word. You've not denied my name. You've kept the word, in verse 10, of my perseverance. You've stood strong in the face of the synagogue of Satan, Jews who say they are Jews, but they actually lie. They're not. They became strong in Christ, even though they were few in numbers. Doesn't that strike you as what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9? He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected, how? In weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, Paul says, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Amen? Earlier in his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul wrote some even more penetrating words, countercultural words to the church today. Let me read them to you out of the message. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Paul says, Human strength can't begin to compete with God's weakness. Take a good look, friends, at who you were when you got called into this life. Let's take a minute and look around the room. Don't look at me. Look around the room. What a ragtag bunch of ragamuffins. <laughs> Now you can look at me, and I'm the worst one of them. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, take a good look, friends, at who you were when you got called into this life, meaning the Christian life. I don't see many of the brightest and the best among you, not many influential, not many from high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses, chose these nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies. That makes it quite clear, Paul says, that none of you can get by with blowing your own horn before God. Everything that we have, right thinking, right living, a clean slate, a fresh start, you know where it comes from? It comes from God in Jesus Christ. 
That's why we have the saying, if you're going to blow a horn, blow a trumpet for God. You'll remember, friends, he continues, that when I first came to you to let you in on God's master stroke, I didn't try to impress you with polished speeches and the latest philosophy. I deliberately kept it plain and simple. First Jesus and who he is, then Jesus and what he did, Jesus crucified. I was unsure of how to go about this, and I felt totally inadequate. I was scared to death, if you want the truth of it. This is Paul, by the way. And so nothing I said could have impressed you or anyone else. But the message came through anyway. God's spirit, God's power did it, which made it clear that your life of faith is a response to God's power, not to some fancy mental or emotional footwork by me or anyone else. Isn't that great? You know what that does? That says, I can do it. It says, you can do it. It doesn't matter how weak you are or how inadequate you think you are. If God's spirit lives in you, God's power lives in you. And it's God's spirit and God's power and God's word that changes people's souls and lives. Not our fancy footwork, not our polished speeches, not our fancy slideshows, not our impeccable worship sets. Yeah, God uses all of that stuff, no question about it. But we can't depend upon that We depend upon his spirit that works through frail, weak, fragile human vessels. Amen? Yeah, amen. This, This is really how the church today is encouraged to operate, isn't it? Really? Yes, I'm encouraging you to operate that way, but is that what we read? Is that what we go to conferences to hear? all the leadership conferences that I have attended, most of them anyway, it's always about getting the brightest and best around the table to hammer out the five-year strategic plan. But we put the bulk of our trust in leadership principles from secular books, hopefully move us from good to great. There's nothing wrong with utilizing principles from the world as long as they're under the power and the jurisdiction and the guidance of the Holy Spirit of God. And we're constantly scouting out for these new and edgy models to adopt and adapt. But is that truly what Christ had in mind? Is that really church? You see, the persistent question of our culture is, what's new? What's exciting? But God's enduring question is, what's best? The best begins and ends with the wisdom of Christ, regardless of what the brightest in the world may think. Right? In the midst of human weakness, churches get heaven's applause by becoming strong in Christ. They go deep, and then God sends them wide. Secondly, what this church did is that in the midst of a corrupt culture, they kept his word. Verse 8, again, says, you have kept my word. In the midst of this, verse 9, this synagogue of Satan, they've kept his word. If strong in Christ, They keep his word. And the third thing here is in the midst of their enemies, they did not deny his name. See that? I read read once that the father of Origen, a third century theologian, an early church father, was arrested for being a Christian. Origen was only 17 years old at the time. He was aflame with the desire to follow his father 
and share in glorious martyrdom. There were you actually people in those days that wanted to be martyred for the faith. His mother pleaded with him not to go. But the headstrong boy did not want to listen to reason. His quick-thinking mother did what she could. You know what she did? She hid his clothes. She hid his clothes. And though Origen stormed and protested, she wouldn't reveal where she hid the clothes. He couldn't leave the house, and so he was unable to volunteer himself for martyrdom. Now, isn't it interesting to me that Origen at 17 was brave enough to be martyred for the faith, but not brave enough to go outside of his house naked? It's a true story. Stepping outside without clothing would have sped up his arrest and imprisonment, but it was a step that he was unwilling to take. You know, in a sense... I suspect that talking with a friend about our faith, a close friend, is for many of us the equivalent of going outside naked. It makes us really uncomfortable. We feel exposed to them. We declare that we will give our lives for Christ if he should ask it from us, but to risk a bit of embarrassment for him seems to be beyond our level of discipleship. How sad that is. The people of this church at Philadelphia, however, were not ashamed of the gospel. They kept his word. They did not deny his name. And I can almost hear them reciting the words of Paul again to the Romans. In Romans chapter 1, verses 14 to 17, Paul writes these words, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who also are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. What? Finish it. Yeah. The righteous man shall live by faith. You see, this church was ready. They were obliged. They felt obliged. They were eager and they were not ashamed. They were not intimidated by their own weakness but empowered by Christ's strength instead. That and that alone is what enables people to serve Christ with all that they have, see? And to take every opportunity they get. But friends, Christ is always opening doors of opportunity for us. The question is, do we fail to take them and walk through them? I know I wrestle with them all the time. I'm wrestling with one right now. Why do we wrestle? Truth be known, a lot of people in this room right now have sat around for a long time and they haven't taken some opportunities that Christ has offered them. Sometimes it's selfishness that holds people back. Maybe it's fear. Could be doubt. Could be knowledge that you know that once you set foot through that door and you, you adopt Jesus as your power and strength that he's going to ask stuff of you. I heard a testimony of a friend of mine the other day that said when he came to faith, somebody asked him, I think it was his wife asked him, you know what you're putting this family up against now, right? Because the enemy's going to attack. 
Maybe people lack confidence or whatever it is. Whatever it is, in the end, you know what it's going to do? It's going to rob you of the fulfillment you might have received by being faithful and taking the risk. What opportunities are we missing? What are we missing as a church? What are you missing as an individual believer in Christ? Stop waiting for some kind of a divine push because this is it right here, right now. God is pushing, and I can tell you from experience that sometimes you don't get another one. Sometimes God is waiting for us to take the step of faith before he will push some more. You see an open door for ministry? Go through it. If it's not what God wants and you're focused on God's will and you're doing of his will, you know what's going to happen? He's going to shut that door and he's going to redirect you. He did that in the scripture to Paul. Here's the point. You can trust him. You can trust him. Philadelphia was spiritually on track, and you know why? Because Christ was at the center of their lives. He was the focus, not programs, not projects. Everything revolved around Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he just kept opening the doors. And when God opens the doors for a church to grow, you know what says here, no one, absolutely no one can stop it. No one can obstruct it. The gates of hell will not prevail against it, Jesus said. That was Jesus' promise to Peter in Matthew 16, 18. And you know what? He has never once reneged on his word, has he? He hasn't. In fact, according to one source, a vibrant Christian witness continues in this city of Philadelphia today. Unlike some of the other churches that we've seen, right, so far. I love this in verse 9. It says, I'm going to cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and they're not, but they lie. Behold, I'm going to make them come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. See, because of their faithfulness, their enemies would be humiliated before them. That's what Jesus says to them. What a promise, huh? But beyond that, Jesus says one of the most reassuring things that any Christian or any church would ever want to hear. Underline it there. I will make them to know that I have loved you. I will make them to know that I have loved you. Is there anything better than that? How will he make them know that? Well, it doesn't say here exactly. But we know one thing, that the enemies of this little church would end up at their feet groveling in the dirt. I will come and make them bow down at your feet. Are they bowing down in worship to this church? No. What are they doing? They're bowing down to the Christ who is Lord of this church. Right? You see, Jesus Christ will never forsake his faithful followers. Never. Verse 10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. And I am coming quickly, so hold fast to what you have in order that no one take your crown. These verses tell me 
that the true church of Jesus Christ, the one that is faithful to Jesus Christ, keeps his word and does not deny his name, the one that perseveres, the church that he loves, will be kept out from, it says, out from the great tribulation that will one day come upon this earth. Now, I know a lot of you don't agree with that. I've already preached on it, so I'm not going to go into the details about it. But again, if these church are representative of churches throughout history, this is the church. This is the one church before the final apostate church that is on fire for Christ. Jesus promises them, I'm going to keep you from the, not just the testing, but the hour of it. And he also says that I'm going to keep you from it. That Greek word, ek, means out from, away from. If, it was, if he was trying to say, I'm going to keep you in and through it, he would have used a completely different Greek word. But he's saying, I'm going to keep you from this testing that's coming upon the whole entire world, and I'm going to keep you from the hour of it. And if you want to know what that entails, I just suggest to you that you concentrate on Revelation chapters 4 through 20, and you will see what that entails. And you won't want to be around. But if you have a faithful relationship with Christ, my personal belief is that you won't be around. And I would direct you to 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 18. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10 says that he delivers us from the wrath to come. You see, tribulation like that is not intended for believers. It's intended for those who dwell upon the earth, a phrase used over a dozen times in the book of Revelation, which always refers to the enemies of the church those who are completely entrenched in and identified with this world system rather than Christ. But our citizenship, Paul says, where is where? It's in heaven, Philippians 3.20 says. Notice Jesus' repeated phrase here. He uses it five times, I will, in verses 9 to 12. I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan to do this. I will let them know that I have loved you because you have kept the word of my perseverance. I will also keep you from the hour of testing. Verse 11, I am coming quickly to hold fast to what you have in order that no one take your crown. Verse 12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And then later on in that verse, he says, I will write upon him the name of my God and the city of my God and my new name. I will. I will, I will, Jesus will, he will. It's a promise. These are encouraging and empowering promises given here to this church and to those who have placed their entire weight upon Jesus Christ. Where they were rejected, Jesus would cause them to be revered because of their relationship with him. Where they were weak in the world, Jesus would make them strongholds, he said, in the kingdom Verse 12 says that. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. There's one feature about this city that's important to know historically, was that this city was destroyed by an earthquake in 17 AD, along with Sardis and other cities in that locality. Most of the others recovered rather quickly from the disaster, but the aftershocks continued in Philadelphia for quite a number of years after that, with the result is that the people of Philadelphia would consistently and repeatedly have to flee the city because of the constant earthquake aftershocks. Pillars 
are symbols of strength and permanence. Jesus says to them, never again, never again will you have to leave it. My city, Jesus says, because I'm gonna make you a pillar in it. You ever notice that when you go or when you look online to see all the ancient ruins of the temples, what's the only thing left standing? The pillars. They understood this. They understood exactly what Jesus was saying. The promise of Jesus here to never go out again is this reference to experience, the experience of these Philadelphians who had to keep fleeing the city. And he says, I'm gonna make you a pillar in my temple. You're not gonna fall and you're never gonna have to leave it again. It's a picture of security. It's a picture of permanence. It's a picture of strength. This is what Christ promises to the church that will follow the principles that Philadelphia did. Where they were outcasts, Jesus would make them sons and daughters. Look at what it says in verse 12. It says, I will write upon him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. You know what they were going to have? They were going to have the signature of Jesus all over them. Isn't that a great picture? hand-stamped with three specific designations indicating their character as intimately connected and identified with God. What are the three things? The name of God, he says, first of all. Secondly, the name of the city of God. I can see it all over us. We'll have this N period, J period. Now, that doesn't mean you're from New Jersey. It means you're from the New Jerusalem, right? The New Jerusalem, and the last two chapters of Revelation give a vivid description of this wonderful city, the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, adorned as a what? As a bride, adorned for her husband, a beautiful bride meeting her husband. This church was the picture of a beautiful bride. That, again, is a picture of loving intimacy with Jesus Christ. And then there's something else here that they were going to write that God's Jesus promised they would write on them. It's just hidden there, buried at the end of verse 12. What is it? What new name? My new name. Did you ever, so far in your Christian life, come across the fact that Jesus is going to have a new name when we get to heaven? We're going to have a new name, but this says Jesus is going to have a new name. What is that name? One writer suggested that since the name symbolizes one's character, that this is a reference to the fact that when our Lord's work of redemption is finished, he will have a new name, one that identifies him with his new character of how we relate to him in heaven. Everyone wants to know what that new name is, but in Revelation 19, 12, we are told that when Jesus appears, he will have that new name written all upon him, but it's a name that no man knows. You don't know it. I don't know it. The Bible doesn't reveal it. You see, before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, an angel appeared to Joseph and told him that Mary would bring forth a son. Remember that? And you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins, right? That's what it says. Jesus means Yahweh saves. 
But when the work of redemption is finished, when we're all home in glory with him and God's work of saving and redeeming is over, Jesus is going to give us a new work to do, whatever that is. And Jesus will be in a new role. Yes, he will still be the redeemer. He will still be the savior. But this new work that he gives us to do, according to his character, we're all going to share in those labors. In the new heavens, in the new earth, redemption will no longer be required, will it? But a new role will be given to the Lord and the new work that the church is called to share. And that's one commentator's insight on it. I think it's pretty valid. A change of names would be meaningful to the Philadelphians as well. Because in that city, they changed their name of the city twice in its history. Two times. It was called New Caesarea, Neo-Caesarea, when Tiberius helped rebuild it after the earthquake. They named it after Tiberius. And then later on, they changed it to one of the Flavian emperors. And then they resumed the name Philadelphia again. These people understood what it meant to have different names. But Jesus says, I'm coming quickly. So hold fast to what you have in order that no one take your crown. This signature that he's going to put all over us, his signature, that's pretty important to grab onto. Does he have his signature on your life? Have you given your heart to him? Some years ago, I received a wonderful gift from a friend. It was a book written by one of my favorite authors of all times, a man whose teachings changed my life as a former Catholic and a new receiver of the grace of Jesus Christ, and I understood him very well. Brennan Manning is his name, and he was a former Catholic priest and an alcoholic and a drunk who continually kept falling into it, but God saved him out of it, and he wrote extensively on grace. And he wrote a book called The Signature of Jesus. The fact that this book was given to me as from a very good friend written by an author that I highly regarded made of, it, of great value to me. But as I opened the book when I first got it in the mail, it was actually some, maybe a couple of days later, I didn't even realize. I opened the book, its value became much more personal to me and precious. And you know why? Because right there on the title page, it says, To Russ, in the love of Jesus, Brennan Manning. Handwritten. See, over the years, I've collected and saved a number of these kinds of things, books, CDs that are autographed by the authors and the performers. And, and while these items alone are valuable to me, the autographs have become much more valuable to me. But you know what is of infinite worth and precious value to me? According to verse 12 here, as a believer in Jesus Christ and a child of God, my value and my worth is rooted in the fact that I have the signature of Jesus engraved on my soul. And so do you if you're a believer in Christ. As those who overcome, we will be autographed by the author himself. And we who have been so weak in our human flesh in our years on this earth will become pillars, it says, in the temple of God. Amen. Great churches overcome 
by leaning on the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Indeed, great Christians overcome by leaning on the sufficiency of Christ. And that is precisely what the church at Laodicea did not do. We're going to look at that next time. See, instead of leaning on Christ, they put confidence in themselves. And that is the other road that we can take. And you know what? You don't even have to intentionally choose that road. All you have to do is not take the road to Philadelphia, and you will be on the road to Laodicea. 